I'm Ashley Lorenz with Microsoft Research. I've spent the last 20 years working in AI and machine learning, but I've never felt more inspired to work in the field than right now. The release of GPT-4 was a watershed moment in the pursuit of artificial intelligence, and yet progress continues to accelerate. The latest large-scale AI models and the systems they power are continuing to exhibit improvements in reasoning, problem-solving, and translation across languages and domains. In this podcast series, I'm sharing conversations with fellow researchers about the latest developments in large-scale AI models, the work we're doing to understand their capabilities and limitations, and ultimately how innovations like these can have the greatest benefit for humanity. Welcome to AI Frontiers. Today, I'll speak with Ahmed Awadala. Ahmed is a senior principal researcher at Microsoft Research in Redmond. Much of his work focuses on machine learning, helping to create foundation models that excel at key tasks while using less compute and energy. His work has been at the leading edge of recent progress in AI and gives him a unique perspective on where it will go next. All right, Ahmed, let's dive right in. Um, among other things, I find that people are hungry to understand the drivers of the progress we're seeing in AI. Over these last few years, when people like you or I have tried to explain this, we've often pointed to some measure of scale. Uh, you know, I know many times as I've given talks in AI, I've shown plots that feature some kind of up and to the right trend in scale over time. The increasing size of the AI models we're training, the increasing size of the data sets we're using to train them on, or even the corresponding increase in the overall compute budget. But when you double-click into this general notion of scale related to large AI models, what gets exposed is really a rapidly evolving frontier of experimental science. So Ahmed, I'm going to start with a big question, and then we can kind of decompose it from there. As someone at the forefront of all of this, how has your understanding of what's driving progress in AI changed over this last year? Thanks, Ashley. Uh, that's a very good question, and the short answer is that it changed a lot. I think uh, I have never been learning as much as I have been uh, throughout my career. Uh, things are moving really, really fast. Uh, the progress is amazing to witness, and we're just learning more and more every day. To your point, for quite some time, we were thinking of a scale as the main driver of progress. And scale is clearly very important and necessary. But over the last year, we have been also seeing many different things. Maybe the most prominent one is the importance of data being used for training these models. And that's not very separate from scale, because when we think about scale, what really matters is how much compute we are spending in training these models. And you can to choose to spend that compute in making the model bigger or in training it in more and more data, training it for longer. And there has been over the past few years a lot of iterations on trying to understand that. But it has been very clear over the last year that we were, in a sense, underestimating the value of data in different ways. Number one, in having more data. But even more important, the quality of the data having cleaner data, having more representative data, and also the distribution or the mixing of the data that we are using. Like, 
For example, one of the very interesting things we have witnessed maybe over the last year to year and a half is that a lot of the language models are being trained on text and code. And surprisingly, the training on code is actually helping the model a lot, not just on coding tasks, but in normal other tasks that do not really involve coding. More importantly, I think one of the big shifts last year in particular, it has been happening for quite some time, but we have been seeing a lot of value for it last year, is that there are now like two stages of training these models. The pre-training stage where you are actually training the language model in an autoregressive manner to predict the next word, and that just makes it a very good language model. But then the post-training stage with the instruction tuning and RLHF and reward models using a very different form of data. This is not self-supervised, freely available data on the internet anymore. This is human-generated, human-curated, maybe a mix of model and human-curated data that's trying to get the model to be better at very specific elements like being more helpful or being harmless. There's so much to unpack even in that in that short answer. So let's let's dig into some of these core concepts here. You you teed up this notion of ways to spend compute, you know, ways to spend a compute budget. And one of the things you said was, you know, one of the things we can do is is make the model bigger. And I think to really illustrate this concept, we need to we need to dig into what that means. It, one one concept that gets obfuscated there a little bit is the architecture of the model. So what does it mean to make the model bigger? Maybe you can tell us something about you know how to think about parameters in the model, and how important is architecture in that in that conversation? So most of the progress, especially in language uh, and in other domains as well, uh, have been. Uh, using the transformer model. And the transformer model have been actually um, very robust to change over the years. I don't th- I think a lot, I've asked a lot of experts over the years and whether they had expected the transformer model to be still around five, six years later. Uh, and most of them thought we would have something very different. But it has been very robust and very universal. And yes, there have been improvement and changes, but the core idea has still been the same. And with uh, dense transformer models, the size of the model tends to be around the number of layers that you have in the model and then the number of parameters that you have in each layer, which is the, basically the depth and the width of the model. And we have been seeing a very steady exponential increase in that. It's very, uh, it's very interesting to think that just like five years ago when BERT came up, the large model was like 300-something million parameters and the smaller one was 100 million parameters. And we consider these to be really large models. Uh, now that's a very, very small scale. So things have been moving and moving really fast in making these models bigger. But over the time, there started to be an understanding being developed of how big should the model be? If I were to invest a certain amount of compute, what should I do with that in terms of the model size, and especially on how it relates to the data size? And perhaps uh, the, one of the uh, most significant efforts there was the uh, OpenAI scaling laws, which came up in uh, 2020, late 2020, uh, I think. And it was basically saying that if you, are, if you have 10x more compute to spend, then you should dedicate maybe five of that, 5x of that to making the model bigger, more layers, more width, and maybe 2x to making the data bigger. 
And that translated to, for like, say, GPT-3-like model being trained on almost 300 billion tokens. And for quite some time, the 300 billion tokens was stuck. Like, it became the standard, and a lot of people were using that. But then, fast forward uh, less than two years later, uh, came the second iteration of the scaling laws, the, the Chinchilla paper, where the um, the recommendation was slightly different. It was like we were not paying enough attention to the size of the data. Actually, you should now think of the data and the size as equally and the size of the model as equally important. So, if you were to invest in X more, you should just split them evenly between bigger model and more data. And that was quite a change, and it actually got a lot of people to pay more attention to the data. But then, fast forward one more year in 2023, and maybe uh, uh, pioneered mostly with the LAMA work from Meta, and then many, many others followed suit, we started finding out that we don't have to operate at this optimal point. We can actually push for more data, and the model will continue to improve. And that's interesting because when you are thinking about the training versus the deployment or the inference uh, bars of the life cycle of the model, they are actually very different. When you are training the model, you would like the model to learn to generalize as best as possible. When you are actually using the model, the size of the model becomes a huge difference. I actually recall uh, an interesting quote from a 2015 paper by... Uh, uh, Jeff Hinton and others, that's the paper that introduced the idea of distillation for neural networks. Distillation was there before uh, from the work of, of Rich Kravana, our colleague here at Microsoft and others. Uh, but in 2015, there was this paper uh, specifically discussing distilling models for uh, neural network models. And one of the uh, motivating um, sentences at the very beginning of the paper was basically talking about insects and how Insects would have different forms throughout their life cycles. At the beginning of their life, they are optimized for extracting energy and nutrients from the environment. And then later on, in their adult form, they have a very different form that's optimized for flying and traveling and reproduction and so on and so forth. So that, that analogy is very interesting here because like you can think about the same, not just in the context of distillation as this paper was describing, but just for pre-training the models in general. Yes, the optimal point might have been to equally split uh, your compute between the data and the size, but actually going more toward having more and more data actually is beneficial. As long as the model is getting better, it will give you a lot more benefit because you have a smaller model to use during the inference time. And we would see that with the latest uh, iteration of the LAMA models, we are now seeing models as small as 7 billion parameters being trained on 1 to 2 trillion tokens of data, which was unheard before. Let's talk a bit more about evaluating performance. Of course, the neural scaling laws that you referenced earlier really predict how the performance of a model on the task of next word prediction will improve with the size of the model or the size of the data. But, of course, that's not what we really care about. What we're really after is better performance on any number of downstream tasks, like reasoning, document summarization, or even writing fiction. How do we predict and measure performance in that broader sense? Yeah, that's a very good question. And that's another area where uh, our understanding of evaluating generative models in general 
has been challenged quite a bit over the last year in particular. And I think uh, one of the areas that I would recommend to spend a lot of time working on right now is figuring out a better strategy around evaluating generative language models. We This field has been very benchmark-driven for many, many years, and we have been seeing uh, a lot of very well-established benchmarks uh, that have been helping the community in general make a lot of progress. Uh, we have seen leaderboards like Glue and Superglue and many, many others play a very important role in the development of pre-trained models. But over the last year, there has been a lot of changes. One is that these benchmarks are being saturated really, really quickly. Uh, there was this paper that I was reading a, few, uh, reading a few months back talking about how we went from times where benchmarks like Switchboard and MNEST for, for speech and image processing lasted for 10 to 20 years before they get saturated to times where things like Squad and Glue and Super Glue are getting saturated in a year or two to now where many of the benchmarks just get like maybe two or three submissions and that's it. It gets saturated very quickly after that. Uh, Big Bench is a, a prime example of that, where it was like a collaborative effort over 400 people coming together from many different institutions, designing a benchmark to challenge language models. And then came GPT-4, and we're seeing that it's doing really, really, really well, even in like zero shot and, and, and a few shot settings where the tasks are completely new to the model. So the model out of the box is basically solving a lot of the benchmarks that we have. That's an artifact of the significant progress that we have been seeing and the speed of that progress, but it's actually making that answer to that question even harder. But there is another thing that's making it even harder is that the benchmarks are giving us much more limited view of the actual capabilities of these models uh, compared to what they can actually do, uh, especially models like GPT-4. The, the breadth of capabilities of the model is beyond what we had benchmarks to measure it with. And you have seen once it was released and once people started interacting with it, there were so many experiences and so many efforts just thinking about what can we do with that model. Now we figured out that it can do this new task, it can do that new task, I can use it in this way that I didn't think about before. So that expansion and the surface of capabilities of the models is making the question of evaluating them even, even harder. Uh, and, and, and moving forward, I think this would be one of the most interesting areas to really spend time on. Why don't we talk a bit about a paper that you recently published with some Microsoft research colleague called ORCA, uh, Progressive Learning from Complex Explanation Traces of, of GPT-4. And there's a couple of, of concepts that we've been talking about that I want to pull through uh, to, a, to a discussion around, around this work. One is the idea of quality of data. And so it'd be great to hear you know, some of the intuitions around you know, what, what drove you to focus on data quality versus, you know, number of parameters or number of tokens? And then we can also come back to this notion of benchmarks, because to publish, you have to pick some benchmarks, <laughs> right? Um, so, so first, why don't we talk about the intuitions behind this paper and what you did there? And then I'd love to understand how you thought through the process of, of picking benchmarks to uh, evaluate these models. Yeah, so so in, in this paper, we were basically thinking about, like, there has been a lot of work, actually, on thinking about 
how do we have a very powerful model and use it to improve a less powerful model? Uh, this is not a new concept. It has been there forever. And I mentioned the, the Hinton et al. paper around distillation, one of the uh, pioneer papers applying that to neural networks. And over time, this field actually continued getting better and better. And the way the large, more powerful models were used just continued evolving. So people were using uh, the logits generated by the model and then maybe looking at intermediate layers and their output, maybe looking at, at tension maps and trying to map that uh, between the models and coming up with more and more complex ways of distilling information from the powerful model to improve a less powerful model. But with models like GPT-4, we were thinking that GPT-4 is so good that you can actually start thinking about different ways of having a model teaching another model. And in that particular case, the idea was, can we actually have the powerful model explain in step-by-step step how to do the task? And can we actually have a smaller model learn from that? And how far can this actually help the smaller model? Big part of this has to do with the uh, data quality, but also with the teacher model quality. Uh, you wouldn't be able to, and this gets us into the whole notion of synthesized data and the role of synthesized data can play in making models better. Models like GPT-4 at a level of capability where you could actually generate a lot of synthetic data at a very high quality, comparable in some cases to what you get from human, better in some cases than what you could get from a human. And even more than that, when you are working with a model like GPT-4, there has been a lot of work over the last few months demonstrating that you can even get the model to be a lot better by having the model reflect on what it's doing, having the model critique what it's doing, and try to come up with even corrections and improvements to its own generations. And once you have this going, you see that you can actually create very high-quality synthetic data in so many ways. Mostly because of the quality of the model, but also because of like these different ways of generating the data on top of the model. And then the, it was really an experiment of how far can another model learn from this model. And by the way, and there is, uh, we're seeing some work like that as well, it doesn't even have to be a different model. It can be the same model improving itself. It can be the same model giving feedback to itself. That coincided with actually us having, having, we have been spending a lot of time thinking about this idea of learning from feedback or like continual improvement. How can we take a language model and continue to improve it based on interaction, based on feedback? So we started connecting these two concepts and basically thinking of it like the powerful model is just giving feedback to a much less powerful model and trying to help it improve across certain dimensions. And that's where uh, that line of work started. And what we were finding out is that you can actually have the more powerful model teach a smaller model. It would have definitely much narrower capabilities than the bigger model because like by virtue of this training cycle you are just focused on uh, teaching it particular concepts you cannot teach it everything that the large model can do but also because 
this is a, another example of this like post-training step. Like this model has already been pre-trained language model and it's always limited by the base capabilities that it has. So yes, the large language model can teach it a little bit more, uh, but it will always be limited by that. Now you mentioned, you, you, you've sketched out now the idea of using a powerful general purpose model through some process of distillation to train a, a smaller, more special, you know, more, more specialized model. And in the paper, you, uh, you and your colleagues offer a number of case studies. So can you, can you pick one? Uh, give, give us, you know, give us an example of a specialized domain and the way that you utilize GPT-4 to accomplish this training and what the performance outcome was. Yeah, actually, when we were working on this paper, the, the team was thinking that what capability should we try to focus on to, to, to demonstrate that the small model can improve uh, from, from the guidance of the much more powerful model. And we were thinking it would be very cool if we can demonstrate that the small model can get better at reasoning. Uh, because reasoning has been one of the uh, capabilities that have been clearly emerging with larger and larger models. And models like GBT4 demonstrate a level of reasoning that we have never seen with any AI systems before. So we were thinking, can, we, can, can GBT4 help actually uh, get the smaller model to be better at reasoning? And that had a lot of implications on the selection of what data sets uh, to use for, for creating the synthetic data. In this particular paper, by the way, we're not, we're not using GPT-4 to answer the questions. We already have the questions and the answers. We are just asking GPT-4 to explain it in a step-by-step. -step. This is similar to what we have been seeing with uh, chain of thought reasoning, chain of thought prompting and other different prompting techniques that's showing that if you actually push the language model to go step-by-step, -step, it can actually do a lot better. So we're basically saying, can we have these explanations and step-by-step -step traces and have them uh, help the, the smaller language model learn to reason a little bit better? And because of that, actually, and this goes back to uh, your earlier questions about benchmarks, in this particular paper, we chose two main benchmarks. There were more than two, but like the two main benchmarks were Big Bench Hard and AGI Evat. Big Bench Hard is the 23 subset of Big Bench that we were just talking about earlier. Uh, and a lot of the tasks are very heavy on reasoning. Uh, AGI eval is a set of questions that are uh, SAT, LSAT, GRE, GMAT type of questions. They are also very heavy in, on reasoning. The benchmarks were, were selected to highlight that reasoning uh, improvement in the reasoning capability uh, of the model. Uh, and we had, we had a bunch of use cases there, and you would see one of the common themes there is that there is actually, uh, even before the use cases, if you look at the, the, the results, the reasoning ability as measured by these two benchmarks, at least, uh, of the base model significantly improve. It's still far behind the teacher. Uh, the teacher is much, much more powerful and there is no really comparison. But still, the fact that... Uh, collecting synthetic data from a model like GPT-4, explaining reasoning steps, could help a much smaller model get better at reasoning and get better by that magnitude 
with a very interesting finding. We were we were quite a bit surprised actually by the results. We thought that it will improve the model reasoning abilities, but it actually improved it beyond what we expected. And again, this goes back to like imagine if we were if we wanted to do that with without a model like GPT-4, uh, that would entail having humans generate explanations for a very large number of tasks and make sure that these explanations remain faithful and align with the answers uh, of the question. It would have been a very hard uh, task and the type of annotators that you would like to recruit in order to do that, it would have been even made it harder and slower. But having, having the capabilities of a model like GPT-4 is really uh, what made it possible to do that. You, you've outlined now, um, you know, your experiments around using GPT-4 to train a smaller model. But earlier, you also alluded to a pretty compelling idea that maybe even a large, powerful model could, uh, I guess, self-improve by generate, you know, uh, performing a generation, critiquing itself, and then somehow uh, guiding, you know, the parameter weights in a way that, that was informed by the critique. Is that was that part of these experiments, or what? Or is that does that work? Yeah. <laughs> have we have we do we have experimental evidence of that? Yeah, I think I think that's a very good question. That was really how we started. That was really what we were uh, aiming and still uh, trying to do. Uh, the value that we we started off by asking that question: Can we actually have a model self improve, uh, self improve itself? Uh, from an experimental perspective, it was much easier. Uh, to have a powerful model help a smaller model improve, but self improvement is really what we what got us excited about this direction from the beginning. There has been uh, evidence uh, from uh, other work showing up over the last uh, short period, actually showing that this is actually very promising direction too. For example, one of the very interesting findings about these powerful models, I think that the term frontier models is being used to refer to them now, is that they have a very good ability at critiquing and verifying output. And sometimes that's even better than their ability at solving the task. So you can basically go to GBT4 and ask it to solve a coding question, write a Python function to do something. And then you can go again to GPT-4 and ask it to look back at that code and see if there are any bugs in there. And surprisingly, it would identify bugs in its own generation with a very high quality. And then you can go back to GPT-4 again and ask it to improve its own generation and fix the bugs. And it does that. So we actually have uh, a couple of experiments with that. Uh, one of them uh, in... Uh, uh, a toolkit called LIDA that one of my colleagues here, uh, Victor, has been working on for some time. Uh, LIDA is a tool for visualizations, and you basically go there and submit a query. The query would be, say, create a graph that shows the trends of stocks over the last year. And it would actually go to the data, basically, and generate Python code. The Python code, when compiled and executed, would generate a visualization. But then, we were finding out that we don't have to stop there. We can actually ask GPT-4 again to go back to that visualization and critique it. And it doesn't have to be open critique. We can define the dimensions that we would like to improve on. 
and ask GPT-4 to critique and provide feedback across these dimensions. Like it could be the readability of the chart, it could be is the type of a chart the best fit for the data. And surprisingly, it does that quite well. And then that opens the door to so many interesting experiences where you can, after coming up with the initial answer, you can actually suggest some of these improvements to a human, or maybe if you're confident enough, you just go ahead and apply them even without involving the human in the loop, and you actually get a lot better. There was another experiment like that where uh, another uh, colleague of mine uh, has been working on a library called Autogen, which basically helps with these uh, uh, iterative loops on top of language models, as well as figuring out values of hyperparameters and so on and so forth. And the experiments were very similar. There was a notion there of like having uh, a separate agent that the team refers to as a user proxy agent. And that agent basically has a criteria of what the user is trying to do. And it it keeps asking GPT-4 to critique the output and improve the output up until this criteria is met. And we see that we get much, much better uh, value with using GPT-4 this way. That cycle is expensive, though, because you have to iterate and go back multiple times. The whole idea of self-improvement is basically, can we literally distill that cycle into the model itself again? So that as the model is being used and being asked to maybe critique and provide feedback, or maybe also getting some critique and feedback from the human user, can we use that data to continue to improve the model itself? It is pretty fascinating that these models can be better at evaluating uh a candidate solution to a task than generating and a novel solution to the task. On the other hand, maybe it's not so surprising. One of the things that's hard about, uh, or one of the things that can be challenging is this idea of, you know, prompt engineering by which I'm trying to specify a task for the, for the model to solve or for the AI system to solve. But if you think about it, um, the best I can do at specifying the task is to actually try my best to complete the task. I've now specified the task to the greatest extent that I possibly can. So the, so the machine kind of has my best task specification. With that net information, now it becomes a kind of, uh, maybe even in some cases, a superhuman evaluator. Uh, it, it's doing better than I can at evaluating my own work. So that, that's kind of an interesting uh, twist there. Um, back, you know, back to the ORCA paper. One of the things that you wouldn't have seen, you know, earlier in the talk, you you hearkened back to say a decade ago when benchmarks lasted a long, <laughs> a longer time. One of the things that we would not necessarily have seen in a paper from that era, um, you know, say the CNN era of AI, is is a is, is a safety evaluation, you know, for a specialized object recognition model. But in the Orca paper, we do have a safety evaluation. Can you can you talk a little bit about the thought process behind the particular um, evaluations that you did conduct and, and, and why these are necessary in the first place in, in this era of AI? Yeah, I think in this era of AI, this is one of the most important parts of the development cycle of any LLM, large or small, really. Uh, and as we were just describing, we are discovering abilities of these models as we go. So just as there will be a lot of emerging capabilities that are surprising and useful and interesting, this would also open the door to a lot of misuse. And safety evaluation is at least uh, the least we can do in order to make sure that we understand 
uh, how how can this model be used and what are some of the possible harms or the possible misuses that can uh, come from using these models so i think i think this this is now definitely uh, should be a standard for any work on language model and hereby we are not we're not really training a language model from scratch this is more of like a post training or a fine tuning of an existing language model but even for uh, uh, for for research like that i think safety evaluation should be a critical component of that and yes we did some and we we, we actually have a, a couple of paragraphs in the paper where we say we need to do a lot more and, and we are doing a lot more uh, of that right now uh, I think what we did in the paper that we focused on only two dimensions, uh, truthfulness and toxicity. Uh, and we were basically trying to uh, make sure that we are trying to see the additional fine tuning and training that we do. Is it improving the model across these dimensions or is it not? Uh, and the good news that it was actually improving it in post dimensions, at least with the benchmarks that we have tried, uh, I, I think it was interesting that actually on the on the toxicity aspect in particular, we found that this particular type of boost training is actually improving the base model in terms of its tendency to generate uh, toxic or biased content. But I think a big part of that is that we were using uh, Azure uh, ABIs in part of the data uh, cleaning and data processing. And Azure has invested a lot of time and effort in making sure that uh, we have uh, a lot of tools and classifiers for identifying unsafe content. Uh, so the training data, the post-training data benefited from that, which ended up uh, helping the model as well. Uh, but to your point, I think this is a critical component that should go into any work related to pre-training or post-training or even fine-tuning in many cases. And we did some in the paper, but I think I think there's a lot more to be done there. Can you talk a little bit more about post-training um, as distinct from pre-training, how that, how that process has evolved and, and where you see it going from here? I, I, I see a ton of potential and, and, and uh, opportunities there, actually. And uh, pre-training uh, is the, the traditional language model training as we have always done it. Uh, surprisingly, actually, if you go back to, like, I was, I was in... In, in one of the talks I was showing, like a, a 20 years ago paper by uh, Benjo et al. doing the language model training with neural networks, and we're still training neural networks the same way, autoregressive next-word prediction. Very different architecture, a lot of details that goes into the training process, but we're still training them as language model to predict the next word. In a big departure from that, and, and, and it, it started with the Instruct GPT paper and then a lot of other uh, work had followed, there was this introduction of other steps of the language model training process. The first step is instruction tuning, which is showing the model prompts and responses and asking it uh, to and training the model on these prompts and responses. Often these responses are generated by a human. So you are not just training the model to learn the language model criteria only anymore. You are actually training it to respond to a way the human would want it to respond. And this was very interesting because you could see that the language models are really very good text completion engines. 
And at some time, actually, a lot of uh, folks were working on framing the task such that it looks like text completion. So if you are doing classification, you would basically list your input and then ask a question where the completion of that question would be the class that you are looking for. But then the community started figuring out that you can actually introduce this additional step of instruction tuning where now out of all the possible ways of completing a sentence, like if I'm asking a question, maybe listing other similar questions is a very good way of completion. Uh, maybe repeating that question with more details is another way of completion or answering the question is a third way of completion and all of them could be highly probable. The instruction tuning is basically teaching the model the way to respond. And a big part of that has, has, to, has to do with safety as well because you could demonstrate uh, how we want the model to be helpful, how we want the model to be harmless in this instruction tuning step. But the instruction tuning step is only showing the model what to do. It's not showing it what not to do. And this is where the RLHF step came in, the reinforcement learning from human feedback. What's happening really is that instead of showing the model a single answer, we're showing the model more than one answer. And we are basically showing the model a preference. We're basically telling the model answer A is better than answer B. Uh, it could be better for many reasons. We are just encoding our criteria of better into these annotations. And we are training a reward model first that basically its job is given any response would assign a scalar value to it on how good it is. And then we are doing the RLHF training loop where the reward model is used to update the original model such that it learns what are better responses and what are worse responses and tries to align more with the better responses. The post-training is always a concept is very related and, and, and sometimes referred to also as alignment uh, because the way post-training has been mostly used is to align the model to human values, uh, whether this be being helpful or being harmless. Ahmed, as we, as we wrap up here, um, t typically I would ask something like, you know, what's next for your research? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about what, what's next for your research. But, but before you do that, I, I'd love to understand what, what key limitation you see in the current era of AI that you would, would be on your wish list, right, as something that maybe you and your team or maybe the broader field has accomplished in the next five years? What, what new capabilities would be on your wish list for AI over the next five years? Yeah, given the progress, I would say even much shorter than five years. Five months. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I would say, uh, actually, the answer to the two questions are, are very similar. Uh, um, actually, I think where we are with these models right now is much better than many people anticipated. And we are able to solve problems that we didn't think we could solve before. One of the key capabilities that I would like to see getting better over the next like few months to few years, hopefully more toward few months, is the ability of the model to continue to learn. This like continual learning loop where the model is learning as it interacts with the humans. The model is reflecting on past experiences and getting better as we use it. And maybe also getting better in an adaptive way. Like we sometimes use this term adaptive alignment where we're basically saying, we want the model actually to continue to align and continue to align in way it behaves 
across multiple dimensions. Like maybe the model will get more personal as I use it, and it will start acting more and and behaving more in a way I want it to be. Or maybe I am developing a particular application, and for that application, I want the model to be a lot more creative, or I want the model to be a lot more grounded. We can do some of that with prompting right now, but I think having uh, more progress along this notion of continual learning, lifelong learning, this has been a heavily studied uh, uh, subject in machine learning in general, and has been the holy grail of machine learning for many, many, many years, Having a model that's able to continue to learn, continue to adapt, gets better every time you use it, such that when I use it today and I interact with it and it could learn about my preferences and next time along I don't have to state these preferences again. Or maybe when it makes a mistake and I provide a feedback, next time along it already knows that it had made that mistake and it already gives me a better solution. That should have been the last question, but I think I have one more. Um, That is, how will we know that the models are getting better at that, right? But that's a metric that's sort of driven by interaction versus, eva- you know, static evaluation. So how do you how do you measure progress in adaptive alignment that way? I think I think that's a very interesting point, and this actually ties this back with two concepts that we brought up earlier: the evaluation side and the safety side. Uh, because from the evaluation perspective. I do think we need to move beyond static benchmark evaluation to more dynamic human-in-the-loop evaluation. And there has already been attempts and progress at that just over the past few months, and there is still a lot more to do there. The evaluation criteria will not also be universal. Like, there will be a lot, like, a lot of people talk about the, let's say, fabrication, the models making up information effects. Well, if I am using the model to help me write fictional stories, it, like this becomes a feature, it's not a bug. But if I'm using the model to ask questions, especially, especially in a high-stakes scenario, it becomes a very big problem. So having uh, a way of evaluating these models that are dynamic, that are human in the loop, that are adaptive, that aligns with the objectives of how we are using the models uh, will be a very important research area. Uh, and that ties back to the safety angles as well, because if I, if we are barely, uh, we're, 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 everybody's working really hard to try to understand the safety of the models after the models are being trained and they are fixed. But what if, if the model is continuing to improve? What if it's continuing to learn? What if it's learning things from me that are different than what it's learning from you? Then that notion of alignment and safety and evaluation of that becomes also a very open and interesting question. Well, look, I love the ambition there, Ahmed, and uh, thanks for a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much, Ashley.